Hey everyone, welcome to week three of our Googling God teaching series. My name is Jared and I work in communications here at Grace and I am a major YouTube star. Today, I'm on YouTube right now. Let's look at our first question of the day. So first question, if there is a God, why are there mosquitoes? I think the mosquitoes might be asking, why did humans come along and invent bug spray? Um, ruin a bunch of good meals? Question number two. If there is a God, where does he live? Uh, come on, kids of Kids Town. You guys know the answer to this one. We all learned this one at some point or other. Uh, God lives everywhere and including in our hearts. So there you go. Ah, that's that nice moment we're all looking for. Okay, next question. If there is a God, why does bread have carbs? Because it's awesome. Come on now. If bread didn't have carbs, we've all had the low carb bread. Not good, not good. It's because God loves us. That's why bread has carbs. Let me give it to us. If there is a God, why can't I see him? Maybe you're just not looking hard enough. If you look pretty hard, God is everywhere. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's important. Um, last question. If there is a God, why is there so much pain and suffering? I am going to turn this over to this morning's teaching team, Pastors Leah and John. Well, when was the last time that you found yourself asking that question? Or at least a version of that question. If there is a God, why is there so much pain and suffering? It's the question of why, why God? Well, if you heard the bumper video, uh, you may be wondering why I'm standing up here alone without John. Um, actually, John and his wife, Hina, have been expecting a baby in a little over a week. And they woke up this morning and noticed some things going on and uh, wisely headed to the hospital. So they are there now, um, getting some tests done, and it's looking like there might be a baby coming today. So um, we are, yes. We are excited for them, and we are praying for them and their little one. Um, so yeah, looking forward to seeing what may come. Um, so even though John is not here today, uh, he and I worked on this together because the question of pain and suffering really is such a personal question. And so we thought it'd be helpful to bring multiple perspectives. And so John's not with us here in person, but he really is with us through uh, the words and insight um, that were crafted together. And so John actually has a story that will, I think will help us get us started on thinking about this question. And so for those of you who may know John, um, I will do my best to channel his dynamism as uh, he tells uh, his stories. And so the way we practice, I kind of stood here and he stood here, so when I tell his part, I'll stand here. Sound good? Okay. Here I go. As some of you may know, I got married a little over a year ago. I know marriage is not everyone's thing, but for me, I always wanted to get married. But it wasn't because I wanted this huge spectacle of a wedding. I was more excited to actually plan the engagement. 
because typically in American culture, what you do is that you plan a surprise engagement. You buy the ring, you plan something really creative and surprise your significant other in a special way. The operative word here being surprise. So after months of preparing and dreaming and planning, I had the perfect idea. I decided that I was going to propose to her in East Boston at this beautiful place called Pierce Park. And I enlisted the help of friends to help set up flowers and decorations and ready up a laptop. And on this laptop was a beautiful video that I was certain was going to make Hina cry. And when she started crying, I would be crying. And it would be just the most beautiful moment that the world had ever seen. Well, the last part of the surprise of this engagement was going to be an engagement party, actually, at Leah and Andrew's house. And I had invited some friends and some of Hina's family to surprise her after the engagement. And so I make an evite, and I send it out to all our friends and family. And now I'm anxious, just awaiting the day. But with literally three days left to go before the big surprise, I get a message from one of Hina's friends that I had invited to the party. And the text says three words that I will never forget. John, I'm sorry. And I respond, about what? And she replies, I accidentally forward your invite <laughs> to Hina. And I ask, you couldn't possibly be talking about the invite that has all of the information about every last detail of the engagement, could you? To which she says, that's the one. <laughs> okay, just after John gets this message, we're supposed to have a meeting. And so we meet up in my office and I can tell immediately something's wrong. He looks upset, he's not himself. What's going on, I ask him. He shows me the message. I mean, I literally can't believe it. I tried to think about every which way that this could be not what it actually seems like it is. And so I'm trying to help him process. And I had been watching him for weeks, meticulously planning every last detail of this event. And so I'm trying to, make proce to process and make sense of what had just happened with him. And as I'm talking it out with him, I see John's lip start to quiver and his eyes start to well up and he just breaks down and cries right there in my office. And so I quickly like call my husband Andrew because I feel, I'm, I feel like we need some like male support here and like let's come up with a plan, like Andrew will know what to do, like he's great in a crisis and so we're trying to come up with like plan B here. And as we're coming up with this plan, I can tell John's here but not really here because all he's thinking about is why? Why God? Why would this happen? Something I was so looking forward to, why? Maybe you can relate to a moment like that of asking God why? Whether it's a ruined engagement or a lost iPhone or rejection from a college you really wanted to get into, being let go from a job, or maybe receiving an unexpected diagnosis. Or maybe you turn on the news and you hear of the wildfires in Australia that are destroying homes and animals and ecosystems. Or you learn about the historical and ongoing injustices against black Americans that Martin Luther King Jr. spent his life fighting against. And the list could go on and literally on. 
You know, on a scale of things, a ruined engagement really can't compare to other things. But the point is that suffering happens to us all and all around us in big and little ways, from deep and personal, systemic and global. We all suffer to a certain degree, and we see the suffering of others, which has probably led us at some point or another to ask, if there is a God, why is there so much pain and suffering? Well, for the past few weeks, we've been in this series called Googling God, where we're trying to answer some of the most searched questions about God. And last week, Pastor Brian tackled the question, does the Bible really matter? And next week, he's going to be tackling the question, is God angry, sexist, or racist? A question that many people seem to be genuinely wondering about today. But we want to start with another question this morning that people have been wrestling with throughout history, and it's this question of, is there, if there is a God, why is there pain and suffering? And this is a question that really could be approached in so many ways. You know, countless volumes and journals and books have been written throughout history trying to understand this question, and yet we still ask it. So clearly we are not going to solve this question in 30 minutes. But where can we begin? In a little bit, we'll consider some of the perspectives that different worldviews bring to this question. But to begin, we actually want to go directly to scripture and look at a story of a woman who is going through immense suffering. And the story is found in the Gospel of Mark. And in this scene, we find Jesus is actually on, a way to go, on, on his way to go meet a man's dying daughter. And while he is on his way, he encounters a woman. And she is desperate for healing from her suffering. And so the story picks up in Mark 5, verse 24. And here's what Mark tells us. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So we encounter here a woman who is clearly no stranger to suffering. Now for those who may be familiar with this story, we may just think about this story as kind of an example of physical suffering. But the suffering that this woman endure, is enduring is actually more than that. There is financial suffering, social suffering, and physical suffering, just to name a few. So first, surely her suffering is physical. You know, a, a common interpretation of what's going on here is that she has some sort of chronic hemorrhaging from her womb. And although we can't exactly diagnose what's going on here, because, I mean, she didn't really have the luxury of mixed diagnosing herself through endless WebMD searches and Google searches. But what we do know is that the bleeding that this woman is experiencing is not normal, and it's been going on for 12 years. So physically suffering. Second, she's obviously financially suffering. We read that she spent all her money under the care of many doctors. It's as if she went to us going to see all these specialists only to find that there is no answer. So she goes and she spends all her money on many doctors. So here in America, I mean, we could spend all our money and just see one doctor, really. <laughs> Apologies to any um, people in the medical profession in the room. I know that it's more complicated than that. But the point being is that she is desperate. 
right? And she's desperate to get rid of her suffering, and instead of getting better, she grew worse. So she's, in addition to her, condi in addition to her condition getting worse, she is left without any money. Thirdly, her physical suffering has social and cultural implications. So purity and impurity are a big deal in the culture that she's living in. And one of the main causes of impurities was bodily discharge in those who had them, in particular women. And so because of her condition, anyone who would come in contact with her in any sort of way would then become unclean. As one commentator puts it, her discharge of blood causes her to be discharged from society. So in this way, she's similar to a leper. Imagine how lonely she must have been. And it had been that way for a long time. So all this to say, her suffering goes beyond what we just see on the surface, which is similar, I think, to a lot of the suffering that you and I experience and that we see others, ex others experience. You know, for those who've suffered emotionally, for example, you know that that, uh, that suffering can sometimes show up in your body as physical suffering and vice versa. A friend of mine shared a while back a, a resource, a book, it's called The Body Keeps the Score, and it explains some of the science behind this idea, the fact that our bodies and our minds and our heart are all, are all interconnected, and so suffering can kind of have this domino effect in our lives. Suffering affects us deeply. And this woman is deeply affected by her suffering. And the story picks up again here in verse 27. And it says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So I wonder what was going on in this woman's mind leading up to this moment, to this encounter with Jesus. What had she been thinking these 12 years that she had been experiencing her suffering? You know, I wonder what kind of questions she may have been asking. Why is this happening? Why do I continue to suffer? Was there something I did to deserve this? You know, whether or not we do it consciously, I think trying to make sense of suffering is something instinctual that we all do. Tim Keller rightly points out, he says, every society must provide a discourse through which its people can make sense of suffering. And they have. There, this chart here represents not all, but some of the different ways that societies have provided discourse through which people can make sense of suffering. So for example, let's take the story of the suffering woman and see how maybe various worldviews might make sense of her suffering. So for example, through a moralistic worldview, there must have been something that this woman did to deserve her suffering. So think karma. She needs to live differently to avoid suffering. Through a self-transcendent view, her suffering is just an illusion. And so she needs to think differently in order to avoid suffering. Through a fatalistic perspective, suffering is her fate, set by supernatural forces of which she has no agency. So there's no relief from suffering. She must just embrace her destiny to suffer and do so nobly. Through a dualistic perspective, this woman's suffering is the result of cosmic forces that are at war, of which she is just a casualty of. 
And so all she can do is wait for a potential future time when good might win the war over evil. And finally, in a secular perspective, her suffering would be seen as a result of her not managing or coping well. And so suffering would end when she would, might gain the skills in order to eliminate the suffering in her life. But there's also a distinctively Christian approach that seeks to solve the problem. And that's kind of the work of theodicy. Maybe you've heard that word before, which is essentially attempts to defend God's goodness and omnipotence in the face of evil and suffering, or amidst the reality of evil and suffering. So the problem's put this way. If God is good and has the power to do anything he wants, why do we suffer? Is God not good? Is God not powerful? Just like various worldviews, Christians throughout history, and likely even in this room, have reconciled this problem differently. So some, for example, might say that evil exists as an effect of sin, both generally and specifically. Similarly, others might say that evil is just is a necessary accompaniment of humans having free will. And still others might say that evil and suffering exist to train us as Christians, which can sometimes lead to this thinking that suffering is, suffering is sort of like a badge of honor. Each of us likely reconciles suffering a bit differently, and perhaps our, our thinking has been influenced by some of these worldviews or some of the Christian thinking or theodicies that have been passed on to us. But our question here, coming back to the text, how is it that this woman seems to reconcile the suffering that she has been experiencing all these years? And the text tells us that in the midst of her pain and suffering, she decides to find Jesus and touch his clothes. So the woman's answer to her suffering was to go and meet Jesus. And so the question for her in the face of suffering doesn't seem to be a why question but a where question, because most pressing for her is where is Jesus? Because wherever he is, there seems to be healing, and so I have to go find him. Theologians like Bonhoeffer, Moltmann, or Cohn posit that for scripture, the issue actually is not that evil exists, but how God has, is, and will respond to it. Because ultimately, those who suffer need more than a philosophical answer. They need healing. They need help. And I think that's what we find in this text in verse 28. It says, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And so the suffering woman doesn't go to Jesus for a philosophical response or even a theological response. She goes to Jesus for help. She knew there was something about the person of Jesus that there was healing in his presence. And she was right, because the Bible tells us that her bleeding stopped immediately. And so I think we learn here that the real question for someone who is suffering is actually not so much why God, but where. Where is God in the midst of pain and suffering? So picking back up in verse 30, the text tells us at once 
Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Jesus could have continued to keep walking, right? She was healed. He's on his way somewhere. She reached out to touch him. He's healed. She's healed. There's nothing more that needs to be done. Didn't she get what she wanted? But it's interesting that Jesus makes it a point to stop, turn around, and ask, who touched my clothes? Now, to some of us introverts in the room, being called out in a crowd like this is literally like worst nightmare scenario, right? But have you ever thought about why is it that Jesus calls out and asks, who touched me? Because Jesus must have known who touched him, right? He senses the power has gone out from him. He must have known. So why does he ask the question? It kind of makes me think about my experience in youth ministry. You know, kids always think that they're so clever and that they can get away with their little pranks, especially on retreats. And I remember one year, uh, John went back from a meeting and he found that every single one of his personal belongings was zip tied to a bed. <laughs> his backpack, his sleeping bag, like literally everything zip tied to the bunk bed. And so he gets into the room and he immediately knows who does it, in large part because the zip tie bag was hanging out of this kid's backpack. <laughs> but he asks anyway, guys, who zip tied my stuff to the bed? But he didn't ask because he was trying to punish them. Well, maybe partly. <laughs> but he asks because it's actually an opportunity to connect. When we ask students who did it, and someone says, it was me, there's actually an opportunity for friendship, for relationship, for connection in that moment. And to talk about how long ago was it that you planned to bring the zip ties on the retreat? And how long did it actually take you to zip tie every single item to the bed? Is that why you had to leave lunch early today? Okay, so this woman didn't zip tie anything of Jesus's to a bunk bed. But from the text, I, we kind of get this feeling that she felt like she had done something wrong, and partially because culturally it was wrong, right? Here's an unclean woman out amongst a large crowd, reaches out and touches Jesus. And the story verifies this as it tells us that she came and fell on his feet trembling with fear. But Jesus isn't interested in humiliating her or judging her contrary to what she may have expected. He wants to meet her. He wants to know her. He wants to affirm her. He doesn't want to just fix her and her problem. He wants to connect. He wants a deeper relationship with her. So where is God in the midst of pain and suffering? God is with the sufferer. Jesus is with the sufferer. And upon meeting her, here's what he says to her. Verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So the word that's used here 
mastiques is a word that's used in verse 34 to mean suffering. And it's also translated in other translations, disease. But the more literal translation of the word is actually, get this, a flexible instrument used for lashing, a whip or a lash. Think about it for a second. Where else in scripture have we seen an instrument like this that's used as a whip or a lash? We actually find this same root word that's used here to describe what it is this woman is healed from a few verses later, a few chapters later in Mark 10. Verse 33 and 34, it says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The same root word that's used to describe the suffering that this woman is freed from is the same root word that is used to explain the flogging that Jesus himself went through. In a way, it feels like there is almost a transference in these words. He says, go and be freed from your suffering because I am going to endure that suffering. It's almost like a transference of suffering. You will be released from your suffering as I take it on. I will be enduring the suffering for humankind. And so where is God amidst pain and suffering? God is with the sufferer. Jesus is with the sufferer. And more than that, Jesus is suffering with the sufferer. You know, there's something that can't really be explained when you know someone can identify with the suffering that you've been through. Uh, as pastors, we have the opportunity to pray uh, with our Encourage Cancer support ministry that's here at Grace. And in some of the moments that we've had to pray with people that are going through some of the greatest difficulty in their life, we see tremendous communion that happens in this group as they deeply understand one another's suffering. And they're able to identify with each other's pain in a way that I can't. And you know, it's not that you can't support someone going through something that you haven't personally gone through, but there's something powerful knowing that someone really knows the depth of exactly what you are experiencing and going through. That is what Jesus is like. Because God suffers with the sufferer. So for those who may be going through a season of suffering or may know someone who is going through a season of suffering, you know, what does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus is suffering with the sufferer? I think there's two invitations here. And the first is this. I think there's an invitation to allow Jesus and others to suffer with you. You know, I've spent a lot of my life actually thinking about suffering and some of the traumatizing effects that it can have on us, both individually and corporately. By the time I reached my fifth birthday, I was already a survivor of abuse, of divorced parents, and of a family struggling with addiction. And while I became acquainted with the brokenness that can wreak havoc in our world at a very young age, 
I really was also the benefactor of an incredible support system around me, that charge being led in large part by my mother. Processing and healing has really taken a lot of twists and turns in my life. And in my 20s in particular, I found myself really struggling. Why was it that I was having such a hard time in relationships? And why did I feel just so sad all the time? Why did I have to deal with all this junk that happened in my life? But the truth was, asking why really only got me so far. I needed to let Jesus into the hurting places in my life. One of the uh, practices and exercises that my counselor gave me at the time was to practice uh, listening to music that reveals the heart of God. And so what I would do is I would set a 20 minute timer, play music, close my eyes, and imagine Jesus speaking those words to me. And in the time leading up to some really challenging counseling sessions where I invited certain members of my family to join me for what was really difficult conversations, I created a list of people that I invited uh, into that process to vulnerably share with them the hurt that I was seeking healing from and to invite them to stand with me and to pray. I needed Jesus. And I needed Jesus not just to do a miraculous work, but I needed to know that Jesus was with me in my pain and knew my pain. And I needed people to surround me, to stand in solidarity with me. And they did. And Jesus did. And continues to do so. Is there anyone here who might need to allow Jesus and others into the suffering that you're experiencing? Because healing begins when we bring our pain to Jesus. Have you encountered the Jesus who suffers with the sufferer? Who is suffering with you? And have you let others into your suffering, really in, allowing them to hold your suffering with you or for you at times? We, as Jesus' hands and feet on earth, are called to stand in solidarity as he has and does do with the sufferer, which I think brings us to the second invitation, which is to allow Jesus to meet others through you. On this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we remember a man who committed his life to combating, combating racial inequality. He was someone who was not silent in the midst of a suffering people. He was fully present. He was suffering with sufferers. But he wasn't just present by being there, he was present by suffering himself, carrying the pain and suffering of those that were affected by racial injustice. And so we don't just want companionship in our suffering as helpful as that is. We want help overcoming. And that is what Jesus has done on the cross and will one day once and for all do. It's hard to imagine wanting to suffer with someone who is suffering because each of us has our own personal things that we're struggling with and going through. But I think the call of Jesus really does take us deeper. Where is there suffering or pain that you might see around you right now? Maybe it's a neighbor who went through a divorce recently. Or maybe it's the pain of a refugee who is struggling to learn English and adjust to a completely new environment. 
Or maybe it's the suffering of a black American who even amidst the, all the work that Martin Luther King and others have done may continue to face racial inequality in their own country. LEV Cell encapsulates really the heart of what we're talking about here. For those of you who don't know him, he was a writer, professor, activist, and Holocaust survivor. Maybe you're familiar with his book, Night, where he talks about his experiences as a Jewish prisoner in concentration camps. And he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1986 for the work that he's done and the message of peace and human dignity, uh, even amidst grave suffering and humiliation. And during his acceptance speech, here's what he said. I swore never to be silent whenever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when men and women are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, that place must, at that moment, become the center of the universe. These are strong words, and maybe they stir up a lot of feelings and reaction for you. But in our story today, we read that Jesus, on his way to a suffering, dying girl, stops to be with a suffering woman. So where is Jesus in the midst of pain and suffering? He is present, suffering with us, and you. So may we be like Jesus to people who are near us who are suffering and to a world that is suffering. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful that you are a God who knows our suffering and you are with us. So God, we pray that we may have eyes to see the areas of our life that you are seeking to be uh, with us and to heal with your very presence. And God, may you embolden us to stand with those who are suffering, to be the hands and feet of you in a hurting world. May it be so. Amen.